You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in the field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. We have another Science Commune episode for you. Daniel Chen speaks with Carolyn Bertozzi, professor of chemistry at Stanford University. This interview was a treat to listen to. Not only did they cover Dr. Bertozzi's work in glycoscience and what it's like to be a chemist working in a field dominated by cancer biologists, they also touched on the need for diverse role models and leaders throughout the field. Take a listen. We've all had that experience where the new kid in class raises their hand and has an idea that we wish we had thought of. But what if you're a mechanic and it's the school teacher that has a new idea about how to best fix the transmission on your car? Why didn't I think of that? And what was the school teacher thinking in that example? This is Science Commune and I'm Daniel Chen. Today, I'm joined here by... Carolyn Bertozzi, professor of chemistry at Stanford University and director of Stanford ChemH. Carolyn, I'm thrilled to be here talking with you today. I've followed some of your work for years, um, but we've never had a chance to meet despite my previous time at Stanford. I'm curious, how, how did you become interested in science? Well, I, you know, I grew up in a science family, so I think um, that probably is the foundation of it, um, in that my father was a professor of physics at MIT. So even though I never felt pressured to, you know, become a scientist or focus entirely on science, we definitely had, you know, an atmosphere of science. We had gadgets lying around our house that he would bring home and we would play with them and we would go hang out at his work and got to see some of his instruments. Um, So I certainly had no fear of science. That's funny. Um, This was not a setup, but my father was a physics professor at MIT, um, so I relate to that, that background of coming up in a very science-oriented family. I so chose our biology. Probably knew each, our parents probably knew probably, each other. Probably. Yeah. probably. Okay. Um, I chose biology. You chose chemistry. How, where did, how did that end up, and how come neither of us chose physics? That's a great question. You know, my dad um, was hoping he would have another physicist in the family, and he came close with my older sister. Uh, She ended up going into applied math. But for me, physics just didn't click. And in fact, chemistry didn't click either, to be honest. Um, When I went to college, my idea was to be a pre-med. So when you're a pre-med, of course, you have to take uh, certain introductory science courses. And I took um, physics and you know, was just there for me. (laughs) Uh, And I took biology, which I actually found very interesting. Um, And then when I took organic chemistry in my sophomore year, again, strictly because it was a pre-med requirement, uh, quite unexpectedly, I found that to be like the real click (laughs) with my brain. Um, So I just kind of found my passion in organic chemistry. And then I switched my major to chemistry at that point. And then that was it. Off I went into chemistry. And so tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, starting with an organic chemistry class is nice. It's not 
anyone's, or most people don't find that to be the easiest class. And I would guess that most pre-meds don't find it to be the one that they're drawn to. So it's interesting that you were drawn into this field. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And I, it certainly was the last thing I expected when I went into the class. Um, in fact, I remember thinking to myself, boy, this is like the last chemistry class I'll ever have to take. <laughs> that was a good thing and finally put chemistry behind me. So it was quite a surprise to me how I took to it and I didn't find it difficult at all. I found it to be the most beautiful, obvious, elegant, simple. <laughs> I mean, it, um, it just really somehow um, felt very natural and comfortable for me to, to think about organic chemistry. And I used to, um, I remember in college, you know, when my friends were out on the weekends and going out partying and stuff. And I really just wanted to be left alone in my dorm room with my organic chemistry textbook because I wanted to keep reading ahead and work out all the problems. And even to the point where I um, ran out of things to do with the textbook from the course. So I found the chemistry library at Harvard, which is a wonderful little hidden gem. I don't know if it's still there, but um, it was this hard to find, quiet, scholarly location where you could just kind of sit in among the bookshelves and I would just pull out all the organic chemistry books I could find and just read them. And I got really into it. And, and so as a chemist, do you find that you think about problems differently? I think I think, you know, I probably think about problems like a chemist, you know, the way that all, all of us do, um, which is at the molecular scale. Right. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of chemist that studies biology using chemical tools. So I'm what you would call a chemical biologist in today's vernacular. Um, but sure, you know, when I, um, when I read a, a paper about a biological pathway or a, a disease process, my mind is always sort of craving the molecular understanding. Um, and it's, it's kind of what drove me to work in the area of glycobiology, actually because that's a field um, where you know, it's, the molecules are, are so complicated that understanding the molecular basis of, of the biology, is, it's a real challenge and it's very attractive, I think, for a, a chemist to want to think about that area of biology. But it's funny because I, I would say modern biologists, most modern biologists or many um, would consider themselves molecular biology. And yet, I think you've started to explore a part of molecular biology that most people either don't understand, aren't aware of, or are completely frightened by. <laughs> by that, do you mean the glycobiology part of molecular biology? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, less so than they used to be, so that's, that's good news. But I think that's, you're right. I think, it, you know, in the early days um, when I was choosing like a path uh, of training, for example, as a postdoctoral fellow, you know, I had come out of a PhD in organic chemistry with a focus on synthesis and in particular synthesis of carbohydrates, right? So I had been exposed to carbohydrates as very challenging targets for chemical synthesis. And then in passing, I had read about some interesting discoveries in biology. So I was attracted to a postdoctoral position. And, and that's where I first discovered that most biologists don't know anything about glycoscience and, and, and that they are, that they are so, sort of um, put off by it. And, and this was back in the early 1990s. Chemists, not so much, though. Chemists, I think, really, you know, really thought that carbohydrates were very cool targets for synthesis. They were 
because they were so difficult. Um, so in, in the chemistry world, you know, carbohydrates, you know, had sort of up on a pedestal, right? But but yeah, in the biology world, they were often some little corner with the door closed, and um, and and it was quite common back then if a if a mainstream biologist, if I can use that term stumbled into some glycoscience by accident, right, in the course of their research, it was not uncommon for them to just kind of walk away and pivot to something else rather than actually dive in and, and work on the problem. I think um, pivot so is really probably a, a nice way to describe it. I think they often close the door and run away screaming. <laughs> sure. And it's understandable because um, the tools were primitive, right? You know, when I was, in fact, you know, as a postdoctoral fellow, I was quite shocked at how primitive the tools were to study glycobiology compared to other types of biology. And, you know, it's understandable people had these really powerful tools for genetic engineering, even before CRISPR, right? There were very powerful tools. And, and for protein engineering, there were some amazing tools. And you could very quickly make progress in areas that, you know, took advantage of those tools. So, of course, you were drawn to that, right? But the glyco tools were still rather primitive and laborious and it was hard to make rapid progress. Um, and, and I saw that when I was a postdoctoral fellow as sort of an unmet need, right? So if you're a chemist, like I was, and you like to develop tools, which I do, um, this is a great space for you to play in because tools were needed. And, and now, you know, 25, 30 years later, the tools are much better actually. What is different about how you can approach you and, and other people in this field can approach this problem, right? Um, if you, if, when I know cancer, cancer biology, we've known for a long time that one of the most altered things about cancer cells is their carbohydrate composition. It's very abnormal. Mm. And yet, I mean, most people don't even realize it's there. And those that do, I think, close the door and run away screaming. They don't <laughs> want to think about it. They... At best, they put it in the way back of the freezer. Uh, <laughs> sure. And this was, of course, of, of great frustration to a chemist, right? Because, again, if you're someone who really likes to understand things at the molecular level, right, individual molecules interacting as a system, um, in glycoscience, you know, there were, like you said, there were these observations, phenotypic observations, like altered glycosylation as a hallmark of malignancy, and, you know, there's so much literature on those correlations. And I, you know, have traced papers back to like the 1950s, right? So, so more than half a century of literature showing these correlations between a certain glycophenotype and poor outcome in cancer. And, you know, the person who's a chemist wants to know why, right? What's the functional, like, what are these carbohydrates doing? You know, do they actually promote disease in some way? And you'd like to understand that, um, and finally, the field has really moved into molecular mechanisms. So it's a really exciting time. And so where do you think that's going to be? If we were to talk about cancer in particular with glycotopes, carbohydrates, sugars on the abnormal sugars on the surface of these cells, do you see this as being more of a physical barrier that is presented by the carbohydrates and altered carbohydrates? Or do you look at it more as a direct way of providing signals that allow the cancer to propagate and survive? Sure. I mean, you know, honestly, I think the role that carbohydrates play in both normal and disease biology is as diverse as the role that proteins play, right? Um, so we all know that there are proteins involved in 
signaling uh, and proliferation. There are proteins involved in barrier function, extracellular matrix physics, um, and there are proteins that allow cells to engage with the immune system. And it turns out the same is true for carbohydrates, right? They're part of that same system of biology. So, you know, for, my, for us in my lab, um, we have focused on changes in glycosylation that have consequences in immune modulation. So um, for just as an example, one of the most prevalent glycophenotypes in cancer is an overabundance of sialoglycans. So glycans that terminate with a particular sugar unit called sialic acid. And that phenotype, you know, was first identified in the 1950s. And it's quite widespread, solid tumors, leukemias, you just see that phenotype everywhere. And, you know, about 10 years ago, there was kind of a light bulb that went on in the field. Um, and it came basically in the wake of what we learned about the T-cell checkpoint receptors and their role in immune modulation and their engagement uh, by ligands that tumors express in order to evade immune recognition. Um, and it turns out that there's a big family of immune modulatory receptors um, that are on all classes of immune cells, not just T cells, but all the, all the other innate immune cells too, and macrophages and NK cells. And this family of receptors binds sialoglycans. So a tumor that elevates the density of these sialoglycans is able to basically shut down immune cells by engagement of these immune modulatory receptors in exactly the same way that molecules like PDL1 engage with PD1, right? And of course, we know that that axis of the T cell checkpoint receptors has been very successful for immune therapy targeting. It's transformed oncology. And likewise, I think our understanding of the roles of these sialic acids and their receptors it's a great class of new targets for immune therapy. So this is now a really hot area in biopharma, but it took a while, you know, I think for, for people to really embrace the biology and understand that there's a therapeutic intervention there. And if we were to step back and take a holistic look at this, what, what is the normal part of this biology? Is it the immune system and the host sensing damage or is it, what, what is it that's really at the heart? Yeah, you know, the, the hypothesis in the field um, with very great supporting data um, is that these sialic acid binding receptors, um, they play a role both in recognizing healthy self from damaged self, but also host pathogen discrimination. Um, and there are a family of receptors that have evolved quite rapidly over time. So there's been quite, quite a bit of divergence in this family compared to other mammals which is often what you see when um, evolution is being driven by host pathogen relationships. Um, so, you know, the family of receptors that I'm alluding to has an acronym, we call them the SIGLEC, SIGLEC family. So it's S-I-G-L-E-C. And there's 14 of them in humans and they recognize different kinds of sialoglycans, but they seem to play a role in basically protecting our own selves from damaged or diseased cells, but, but they are recognized, they certainly also can discriminate between our cells and various types of pathogens. And not surprisingly, um, there are pathogens that have learned to exploit these receptors in order to suppress our immunity against them. 
Uh, so it's a, it's a wild world of, of biology, but not surprisingly, a successful cancer has often evolved a mechanism to engage these immune suppressive receptors. Right. Yeah. So where do you think the future is going to go for the field of glycotopes and cancer? Well, you know, these, these interactions are involved in every disease setting, right? So, so I think if you're someone who's interested in finding benefit for patients who suffer from cancer or inflammatory disorders, metabolic disorders, neurodegenerative conditions, infectious disease, I mean, every single one of these therapeutic areas um, involves glycoscience at some level. Um, and I think it's an, it's, it's an aspect of human disease that just is underexploited with regard to drug development. So, um, and again, we can talk about why historically biopharmaceutical companies haven't taken advantage of this biology. And I think it gets to some of the same issues we talked about, which is it's not well understood or people kind of were put off by it or the tools weren't there, didn't know how to think about it. But you can't really use that excuse anymore, I think, <laughs> um, for two reasons. One, one, we do know a lot more now about the glycoscience, the tools have made it possible to understand the biology and to come up with therapeutic ideas. Um, and the other cool thing is that, um, you know, 30 years ago, when I was still, you know, kind of training as a glycoscientist, biologists thought that glyco was much more complicated than other types of biology, other areas of biology. But the truth is, it wasn't, it never was. Um, I think people had a misconception that biology could be thought of in a reductionist way, right? So, you know, when I was trained, biologists thought of everything like a lock and key, pathways as being very linear, um, the central dogma being very simple. But, you know, fast forward to the year 2020, and I think, every, I think we now can acknowledge that actually everything is complicated. <laughs> Chromatin is complicated. <laughs> Epigenetics is complicated, right? systems biology is complicated and glycobiology is no more complicated than any other type of biology. And if you can accept the reality, then why not work on glyco, right? No, I love that concept. And it's one that I gravitate to a lot myself, which is at some level, we have to be able to embrace the complexity because these things are complicated. And if you're afraid of complexity, you're never going to fully understand something. Um, I've been in, I've been really impressed by, I think, what you've meant to the field. I think you've been a role model as an innovator, as a visionary, and as a hardcore scientist. I think you've also been an incredible role model for women in science. And I'm curious how you view that today. Well, I would hope to be a role model, certainly for, for women in science, um, and also for men in science as well. Um, you know, I've been in, in the sort of academic world now. Um, this is now, let's see, I started my first independent position in 1995, right? So, yeah, it's been 25 years for me. And um, things have changed in very positive ways over that period of time. And I would like to think that um, the students and postdocs in my lab who are both men and women, you know, who are kind of developing their careers today, will have a better time of it um, than some of us, in particular women, had 25 years ago. 
um, just before we went online here, you and I were talking about um, an article that kind of lit up the Twitterverse this morning. Um, and it was, it was an article um, that was published, a big data analysis article that identified gender bias in, in publishing and citations, which is a well-known phenomenon, um, but made the unfortunate conclusion that it would be better off for young women not to uh, join the lab of female PIs, but rather to join labs of prestigious male PIs where they're more likely to get more highly cited papers. And I was pretty disappointed <laughs> with that conclusion. I'm not the only one. Uh, Twitter is on fire with criticisms of this paper, but um, it was a reminder to me because, you know, in the early days of my career, when I was first starting my lab, um, I had, I had, a disproportionate number of young women students. And, um, and it, I eventually got to the bottom of this. On the one hand, some of the women were drawn to work for a female PI. They thought that they would get a better shot, you know, and there was good reasons to think that at the time. Um, but at the same time, I think young men at that time were hesitant to join the lab of a female PI. It was a foreign idea because there were so few women PIs and many of us had gone through our entire undergraduate and maybe even high school, but definitely undergraduate training without ever seeing a woman scientist. I mean, I never had a female professor when I was an undergrad and I didn't know anyone who had worked for one. They were unicorns, right? They, they were strange species and, and, and at least to some people. So, um, so later as I became more senior, uh, some of these imbalances disappeared. Um, but it definitely gave me pause to think about like why people chose to or didn't choose to work for me or for a, a young female PI. And I discovered that some of my early female students were actually advised by other male professors, senior male, my own senior colleagues in some cases. They were advised not to work for me because um, they might not be as successful working for a young woman, right? That was, <laughs> so, you know, I thought when I read this paper this morning, I was very disappointed because this paper was advising essentially what some of my young female students had been advised 25 years ago. But I thought we'd moved on from that in the last two and a half decades. And it's just, you know, it's kind of further underscores how much work there is still to do. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can contribute to the change in attitude. Well, as a father of a daughter, you know, I, I hope you're successful there. It's, it is sad to hear and recognize how difficult the journey can be. And I hope that doesn't push young women away from the field because I think it's so important to have those opportunities. And we all think about science differently and we need more scientists in our future. Oh, I agree completely. And, and I would also restate the fact that I think it's great that I can be a role model for women who might work in my lab or that I might, you know, interact with and professionally in the, in the world. But I do also think it's equally important that I have men who work in my lab and have a female boss. I think um, that's an important sort of element of training is that a man might work for a senior woman and, and that should be considered, that should be normalized. And I think that will make him a better mentor later to his female trainees. I couldn't agree more. Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. 
Tune in next episode for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering. And if you want even more content on the latest research and biotherapeutics developments, please check out Pep Talk, the Protein Science and Production Week. Pep Talk celebrates its 20th anniversary this January 19th through the 21st for its first ever virtual conference and expo. It will feature a one-on-one networking platform, an interactive exhibit hall, live Q&A sessions, breakout groups, research posters, and more. To register, visit chi-peptalk.com. That's chi-peptalk.com.